our voices, Lord, this morning we have joined with the chorus of heavenly beings that we read of, or we mentioned earlier, God, as well as creation itself that bursts forth in joy as it sings praises to you, its creator. I thank you, Lord, that you've redeemed our hearts, that you've quickened our tongues, and that you've loosed our minds to comprehend the glorious truths, Father, in your holy scriptures. This morning, it's our desire to add to the lines that exist within our soul another line to the precepts we've come to know and to cherish another precept so that line upon line, precept upon precept, you might use your word in this time in it to shape us into your image, to conform us to the measure of Jesus Christ and his maturity, his fullness and his manhood and his perfection. Lord, as we strive to this end, I pray that you would work your mighty sanctifying work in us, Lord, and that today you might produce fruit from this time of study in your holy scriptures. Also pray, Lord, if there is any fellowshipping with us today who as of yet have not come face to face with their own sin, face to face with their Savior Jesus Christ, that you might move them, Lord, by your, the exaltation of yourself, Lord Jesus, to bow the knee and surrender and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, that they might find hope and salvation in you. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. I ask you to remain standing or to stand if you're able and turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, we will read two miracles, three miracles in fact, following the third great discourse. We'll overlap the lion's share of our text from last week, speaking of the 5,000, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on the water, and also the healing of the sick in Gennesaret. So in Matthew chapter 14, this will bring us through verses 13 through 36, so follow me as I read. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. Verse 17, they said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. And when he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Verse 22, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up onto the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land. Beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. 
But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Verse 34, And when they had crossed over, they came to a land at Gennesaret. And when came to land at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick, and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well, says the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last week we covered most of this territory with a framework in mind. I labeled last week's message Gospel Prospectus. A a prospectus can be a statement or situation that forecasts the nature of something else. And so I asked the question of Matthew 14 in my own study and sought to bring some of my findings to you last week. What of the gospel can we read between the, line, between the lines in the miracles of Jesus? And so we proposed several ways that we may see some allusions to future events in the work of Jesus Christ and His ministry that would culminate in His going to the cross and His sacrifice for our sins, His death then, burial, and resurrection, and consequent commission, the Great Commission, and then ascension into glory. And I believe we find these elements here. We asked the question last week, how do the miracles that followed Jesus' message relate to the gospel as a whole? We've sought to understand the book of Matthew as a cohesive unit, not as a cut-and-paste journal. That the purpose of the record of these miracles is to display in situations and events greater concepts and themes of redemption. And I find for myself, if I study with those things in mind, it's amazing what comes out of the pages and to the fore as we read. Well, this morning I'd like to offer to you a slightly different perspective on what we might learn from these three miracles. The feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on the water, and the healings in Gennesaret. And this morning, I'd like to examine them in light of Exodus Echoes, if you will. That's the title of this morning's message, Exodus Echoes. In what ways does this passage perhaps echo the redemptive history of God's work, relationship to His covenant people in the past? There were types and symbols all throughout the Scriptures, and some of them I'm sure you're familiar with. But for me, in reading these passages... I became more familiar with how those types and symbols begin to come forward through the events, through the situations, through the record of Jesus' miracles. And when we think of these passages of Scripture in this way, we find out that the miracles of Christ are not just Him displaying His power in any old fashion, in any old way, things that would be most impressive to man, parlor tricks and the like that He would find fascinating and spectacular. Instead, the things that Jesus did as a demonstration of His messianic power had more meaning than just the power therein displayed. 
They also had a redemptive historical context. They were communicating a message even as they were demonstrating his authority and his power. So this morning, I would like to explore how the message of Exodus is communicated in Christ and in his miracles. In Matthew 14, verses 13 through 36, of which we've just read, there is something of an Exodus echo, I would make the case, in the events of Israel's history, these events of Israel's history in Exodus provide a definite, definitive covenantal imagery. There are concepts, language, and intrinsic redemptive themes of Scripture that we find in the record of the spectacular events, the miraculous events of the Old Testament. This morning, as we dig deeper and perhaps see a few of the allusions repeated, perhaps we can see how these concepts of the Exodus, the language, the intrinsic nature of the works of God, the covenantal imagery is also portrayed in the works of Jesus. If we go back to the Old Testament and to just uh, whet your appetite for further study and perhaps a bookmarker you might want to place in your Bible, Exodus 12 is one of those significant landmark passages or chapters where the people of God receive a record of God's works and also instructions on how to remember those and encode them and to memorialize and to never forget what the events of, in this instance, the Passover and the Exodus were representing and proclaiming to them. In Exodus 12, we find in this landmark chapter that the people of God, this this landmark chapter for the people of God, a declaration of the significance of the events that the Israelites were about to experience, and it's referenced in a number of ways. They were to mark their calendar, first of all. In Exodus chapter 12, the Lord says through His servant Moses that this, this day of your redemption will be the beginning of days for you. So the significance of the exodus is marked by the beginning of their calendar as a new people at this moment. Also, also there's inaugural feasts that are enacted, feasts that are to continue on into the future, indeed forever. And one of them, or in the chiefly there, is the feast of the Passover. And the message in Exodus 12 is, remember, for all your generations, the work that God is doing, the miracle He's about to perform in your midst, even in these next few hours. Also, there's generational commands. Generational commands to note the significance of this experience to such a high degree that parents take the duty upon themselves to share with the next generation, who will then be equipped to share the next generation as many generations as the Lord is faithful to grant the message of the Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb, revealed during these events. They were to make this a memorial among them forever. Thus, as we consider the history of God's covenant people, it should come as no surprise to us that if these events were indeed this important, and God has instructed His covenant people and through them us, His New Testament, New Covenant people, that these events have eternal meaning, should come as no surprise to us that the language of Exodus is encoded, if you will, interwoven, if you will, in between the lines, if you will, in the language and the works of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Have you ever seen one of those pixelated 3D pictures? I don't know if these are as popular anymore, but I remember when their, uh, people were buying them what they looked like on initial first glance was just tons of thousands, millions of little bitmaps. 
But the instructions were, is look at the end of your nose, kind of focus in just right. And as you stare at this piece of paper, an image that is there, but is easily missed at first glance, will come into view. And some of those pictures, those 3D imagery, it was just fascinating to see what would pop out of the page as you would bring your focus to bear on what was hidden there um, in between the pixels, if you will. And there's a certain uh, analogy there that I think helps us in reading Scripture. What you've, I'm sure you've found, if you love the Bible and have spent much time there, you can read one passage over and over, and suddenly you'll get to a point where you have the right focus. And it's as if the Holy Spirit gives you the correct lens and messages and a loud and clear, beautiful picture of God's revelation seems to jump forward from the words on the page. And I think in the miracles of Jesus, there's Exodus implications that jump forward to us. A sort of 3D image that is brought into focus when we meditate on the works of Christ through the lens of redemptive symbolism. We opened this service with Isaiah 63, 7-14, which is a great summary passage highlighting the timeless language of salvation's history and this timeless language we see in picture form echoed in the miracles of Matthew 14. So with that introduction, let me give you two headings for echoes of Exodus in the miracles of Matthew 14. Heading number one, Exodus echoed in significant events. And heading number two, Exodus echoed in significant acts. The events, the surrounding circumstances, the the evident circumstances in Jesus' work here in three miraculous examples provide us, I think, significant echoes of Exodus. Underneath that heading, we'll find provision in the wilderness as he feeds the 5,000. Secondly, a passage through the waters as the boat on the lake, the stormy sea of Galilee, is brought safely to the other side. And thirdly, it's brought to a place of blessing, land of Gennesaret. And then secondly, under the second heading, Exodus echoed in significant acts, perhaps we can learn something from a sequence of provision, how Jesus proceeds to pray, to break bread, and to feed the 5,000. And then secondly, we'll explore these in a lengthened course here, but just to give you an overview. Secondly, his outstretched arm, that is Christ's outstretched arm to Peter as he begins to sink beneath the waves. And then thirdly, healing garments of the healing act of those who touched the mere hem of Christ's garment and received healing in the land of Gennesaret. So first of all, Exodus echoed in significant events. Consider first, in this passage that we just read, provision in the wilderness. The feeding of the thousands, and this is one of a couple of records in the book of Matthew, of Jesus in wilderness places where there were meager, minimal provisions actually abundantly providing by his miraculous creative power food for the hungry, in this case, in a desolate place. I'm reminding you of verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat and noticed the setting. Where is he going? To a desolate place by himself. That setting is important because it reveals to us echoes of Exodus Was there ever a desolate place that God's people found themselves in where they were wanting for provision and dependent on God sovereignly, miraculously supplying it by the power of His hand? Well, of course, we think of those 40 years of desolation where there was a wandering between the exile of Egypt and the promised land of Canaan. 
verse 14 or 15, we read again of the setting, and it's referred to again as a desolate place. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. In this passage, we also see not only the nature of the setting to which Jesus intervened with his miraculous power, provided food just as manna was provided by the Heavenly Father in the wilderness, but we also see something of the nature of Christ's heart to these masses, these people. It says in verse 16, I'm sorry, in verse 14, and when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. The nature of Christ towards these, pe- towards these people reminds us of the nature of God in his relationship to the people of old. Although God had purposes, sovereign purposes, partially for chastisement, partially to work in them an account of his great works that would be a testimony to the nations, a purpose for their wandering through this desolate place. God did not leave them to their own devices in the Exodus wanderings. He loved his people, even though they were uh, quite short-sighted in their own worship of him, very quick to forget his provision, very quick to rebelliously turn away from his delegated authority through Moses and Aaron and others. And even those who were close to Moses at certain times doubted and disobeyed God's orders. And God all the while had compassion on his people. As we read the Old Testament account, the unbeliever finds it staggering that a God who is so swift and quick in judgment would choose a particular time and level a whole people group in his wrath. But upon further reading, and upon a little bit more close notice of the situations, especially in relationship of sinful man to a holy God, what is truly staggering about the Old Testament account of God's relationship with his people is not his swift and severe judgments, although those teach us of his character as well. What is truly staggering in light of the reality of the situation is the steadfast love of our God. Because justice was merited, but steadfast love and grace was undeserved. God speaks of His relationship to His people in the Old Covenant as one of compassion. And He does so with distinct and sharp and vivid imagery. In Moses' song in the book of Deuteronomy, as the book closes... Moses in chapter 32 verse 18 of Deuteronomy refers to God as the rock that bore those in the wilderness. There's this idea of birthing and of a relationship that God the Father has with His children. There's also language throughout Scripture of relationship, a bridegroom as a bridegroom to a bride. We find that when the covenant relationship between Israel and God the Father broke down, or God the husband, we could say that the terms of that broken covenant were referred to often in marital terms. Why is that the case? Well, it certainly illustrates to us the relational character of God to His own. He is not just a sovereign being in a celestial expanse, distant and unconnected to His creatures and to His creation. But he is intimately connected by relationship and covenant to his own, 
the way a husband would be to a wife, the way a parent would be to a child, even a mother who would bear and nurture children. And this imagery is stark, and it's, it, it communicates to us a depth of the character of God to His people that Jesus then evidenced in His relationship to the people in the wilderness. He had compassion on them. And mind you, this was in every bit as much an unmerited steadfast love and compassion as God's compassion to His people of old was. These people were no holier than those in the Old Testament. These were just as apt to turn on God and His authority and indeed crucify the Christ as those in the Old Testament were apt to complain and to stage a coup against the authority represented in Moses. But nevertheless... This provision in the wilderness evidenced God's power to supply and God's character in relationship to a people who are not only in a desolate place, but a people who are desolate of heart. A people who had a wilderness on the inside, a wilderness for which they needed ultimate provision, spiritual food, bread of life. And again, as we read through the gospel, flashing forward now, we see Jesus himself identifying with physical provision like bread or water for the thirsty soul. He tells the woman at the well, if you find the living water, you will never thirst again. He tells those who ask him, what sign will you show? After all, our fathers received man in the wilderness of old, that he is the bread of life, bread that will satisfy the hunger, the thirst, and the desolation that is most important, which is the relationship of the soul, the plight of the sin-sick, dead soul in relationship to a holy God. Jesus Christ in His compassion not only provided a meal by multiplying bread and fish for these people's physical appetite, but He would break His own body and shed His own blood for their spiritual hunger and thirst, their spiritual desolation, their spiritual darkness and sin. This provision in the wilderness is an echo of the old and it's a foreshadow of the cross and it's a significant event in, the light of the redemp- in light of the redemptive course of history. Also, it's interesting to note in verses 6 through 8 that the poverty of the Messiah, which was prophesied in Isaiah as we read last week, and even the poverty of those who fellowshiped with Him, the relative worldly lack of the disciples played a role in setting, setting the stage for this event. Jesus says in verse 16, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, a confession of their impoverished state, their ability, their lack of ability to supply, that we have only five loaves and two fish. What is five loaves and two fish divided among this people? Well, certainly not enough to satisfy hunger in any way. The pieces by that time, if you were to break and to divide, would be so small that they would be unrecognizable as food. This is how poor Christ's own disciples were to supply the needs of the people. Yet this poverty set the stage for the extraordinary. This again is an illusion. It's an echo of the conditions of the Old Covenant. Remember in Deuteronomy 7 verses 6 through 8, when the Holy When God in His holiness declares His sovereign reasons for choosing His own, He does not choose them because they're impressive in number. He does not choose them because they're strong in character. He chooses them instead as a wayward remnant, as the lost, the outcast, the rejected, and those 
who have nothing to show in themselves of strength and impressive ability or power or identity, national ethnicity. They're a slaved people. Who were these people at this time after 400 years of conscripted hard labor and camps in the gulags of Egypt? What are these people at this time? Do they have any central identity? Do they have any government? Do they have any influence? Do they have any culture, art, or powerful you know, history? Nothing. They have nothing. They are fewest and weakest among the peoples. Yet this poverty, ethnically speaking, in the Old Covenant set the stage for the extraordinary. You see, when Christ, through the pictures of the Old Covenant, led His people out, when God intervened for His glory and His namesake for this abandoned few and led them through the seas, the nations began to take note. Powerful peoples who had technology that far surpassed the few swords they had between them or the little bit of money that they could rattle in their pockets, the nations began to fear and tremble. Why? Well, not because of the impressive power or character of this people in and of themselves, but instead because the impressive display of provision and protection in the wilderness that God inarguably and undoubtedly and magnificently displayed when He parted the seas, when He led them faithfully, when He supplied manna, and when He gave them water flowing from a rock in the wilderness. The poverty of the people set the stage for the extraordinary. Thirdly, we see a significance in the events related to the feeding of the 5,000 in the nature of Christ's miracle working power. Indeed, in this case, we see evidence the Christ that is introduced in the prologue of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And by Him, the worlds were created. Indeed, in this miracle, we see evidence the power of the prologue that we see in the prologue of Hebrews, that all things were made through Christ, and in Him, in him all things were held together. Why? Because out of nothing, He is able to make bread and fish appear. Christ ex nihilo, His out of, work, out of nothing creative power is demonstrated in part in this miracle. And thus we see before us a message that this is the Messiah. He may be comely and unassuming in His appearance, but take note of His miracle working power. You are watching the Creator of the universe provide bread and fish for His people. For those who had ears to hear, for those who had eyes to see, this was a moment that ought to have moved the crowd to confess later with the disciples Worship, saying, truly, you are the Son of God, because no mere man can walk on ways. No mere man can calm the sea. No mere man is the voice that speaks over the waters. No mere man can create something out of nothing. No mere man can provide in these desolate, uh, desolate conditions and circumstances sufficient food for thousands. Only Christ in His creative power only the Messiah, only the one, the God, the one fully God and fully man has the supernatural power to supply under these conditions. Just as God showed himself magnificent and the one who led his people out in days of old. And fourthly, and under provision in the wilderness is the nature of the recipients of grace. 
In verse 21, we read about this collection of people that sat there and listened, sat there and ate while Jesus fed them the food of the Word of God and the food for their physical man. It says, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. And this collection, this demographic, this cross-section of people reminds us again of the cross-section of the people of old. There were whole families here. There are parents there were children. The nature of the recipients of grace, this was a good idea, a cross-section of, the co- of a covenant community as the Lord is pleased to gather for Himself. The Lord gathers in the old covenant families, fathers, mothers, parents, children, for the purpose of a generational commitment to teach the next generation the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living The Lord does the same in the proclamation of the gospel. He calls whole families. Acts 2.39, this promise is for you and for your children and as many as the Lord our God shall call. And this message was here available to this crowd of onlookers, fathers, mothers, and children. 5,000 men besides the women and children attending this event. And for perhaps a few, a remnant contained within that greater cross-section, they would never forget. But after Jesus Christ had revealed Himself in glory, maybe they would have been those who would join Him in the Great Commission, teaching their children the significance of that moment when they were five and six, seven, eight, and ten years old, and they ate the bread from the One who was the bread of life. What an amazing gospel object lesson these parents have. But in the written record, we as parents, if you're fathering, mothering, children, even today, have the same heritage. We can draw deeply from these miracles and display to our children, in terms of this story, the glorious power of the Messiah to provide provision, to grant us means spiritual and physical food in our time of need. Exodus is echoed in significant events in this section Secondly, let's consider the significant events that are represented in Jesus walking on the waters. Here I've labeled this theme, Passage Through the Waters. Again, we find in this stunning account that Jesus is on the mountain by Himself praying. And somehow it comes to His attention, we know in fact how, that His disciples are on the seas in a time weather beaten by this storm. No doubt fearing for their very lives, bailing water as fast as they can, rowing into the wind, and surely their lives are flashing before them as they consider the implications of this storm swamping them. There's no cell phones this time, I don't think anyway. There's no Coast Guard that they could call, certainly. There's no means of communication. They were lonely and abandoned to the elements. They would succumb to this storm, the lightning and the waves would surely swamp the boat unless there was one who was Lord over the elements. Let me pause briefly and address something heretical I heard recently. I was listening to, if I said his name, you'd recognize it, an influential national voice. He was asked a question, you know, these, uh, those who sometimes uh, have different ministries on television and whatnot, they'll take questions difficult things that people are wrestling with. And the question was, why did God allow, or what was His purpose in, or could He have stopped, something of that nature, the tornadoes that often wreak havoc 
in the center of our nation. And this person, this national Christian voice said, well, first of all, you need to understand that God has created systems and storms as a release of energy. He has put all these factors in place. And it wasn't Christ who sent that storm. It wasn't God behind those storms. And you see where he's getting at here? He is trying to, he's sensitive to the question because if people think God is in any way behind a storm that destroyed a home, that fell on a child, then they have a problem with a God like that in their own myopic thinking. But in seeking to free God from the charge of injustice and his short-sighted assessment of this situation, he instead attached his, this idea to God, which is grossly heretical, that God is not in charge of storms. That he is some kind of deistic creator that sets operations in motion and then stands removed from the elements of this world. The Bible disagrees. If you read in this section, you see an account of who is sovereign over the storm and you see a purpose in it. If there was no storm, the conditions would not have been correct to show that he was Lord over the storm. There was a purpose for it in the first place. We see in Psalm 18 that God is Lord of the elements. That lightning flashes at his snap of the fingers, if you will, at his voice and command. That the waves of the sea flood the earth. There was ever a storm that God was responsible for. Think of when this earth was encapsulated in water as the just and holy judgment of a sovereign God on a people that had turned their back on him. Again, I tell you, it is more striking that God would spare us from storms than the fact that he would take out people here and there with a storm. And so this is one of the messages echoed in these significant events. We see in this storm that it was not merely a bunch of elements in some chaotic fashion that God pushed the button on and now remains disconnected from, but instead this storm had meaning. This storm had intent. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Later, in this passage, verse 26 or 25, in the fourth watch of the night, after the disciples had been incurring the wrath of the storm, if you will, in the fourth watch of the night, he, that is Jesus, came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Why should they not be afraid? Do not be afraid because I have power over this storm. I'm evidencing to you that there is sovereignty here. There is messianic authority here. There is Yahweh here. The voice over many waters has shown himself on the waves of the Sea of Galilee, approaching the boat and calling over the waters, announcing that he is Lord over the storm. The psalmist said in Psalm 29, When we consider thoughts like this, we ought to join the heavenly beings in ascribing to the Lord glory and praise for His powerful voice echoes over the waters. It smashes the cedars. It causes earthquakes. It makes the mountains skip before the sound of His voice. And this is the kind of emotion, the kind of fear, the kind of terrifying reverential awareness and awe that the disciples felt. They were terrified. They said it as a ghost. They cried out in fear, and in some ways, rightly so. However, their fear soon turned into confidence 
when they found themselves aligned with the Lord of the storm. And we read the message as it continues after saving Peter from drowning. It says in verse 32, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshipped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. And notice verse 34, when they had crossed over, they came to a land to land at Gennesaret. So not only do we see a picture of lordship over the elements and over the storm, but we see safe passage across the waters of judgment, if you will, passage through the waters. Are there echoes of Exodus in this significant event? Was there passage, safe passage through waters of judgment provided for God's people in the old covenant? We think in Exodus 14 of the record of the Red Sea parting. When the extended hand of Moses, mediating on behalf of the power of God, demonstrating to his people his lordship over the elements, began, and at that moment, began to whip up the storm and the wind. And the Lord, by the breath of his mouth, blew a path straight across the sea. And his people walked safely across. And this, at the, initiate, at the initial point of the exodus, at the very beginning But after those 40 years of wandering where God provided in the wilderness, we remember again a parting of waters in Joshua chapter 3, where the Jordan stood like the Red Sea did at the command of the Almighty in two heaps. When the priests had walked in to these waters, which were at flood stage, with the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing the presence of God, when the presence of God intervened in this significant event, the waters parted, and this... Now, this moment, the exodus was complete. And safely across these waters, the nation of Israel entered into the land of blessing, into the promised land. I mentioned to you last week that the feeding of the 5,000 has connections to communion. Jesus broke bread in this instance, the feeding of the 5,000, and gave it to the people. He later identified with the bread, and even more so, and specifically so at the Last Supper, when he broke the bread and said, take, eat, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. But I also see in this picture a connection with the waters of baptism. We are taught in baptism many things, but it symbolizes certainly the exodus echo of being brought through the waters of judgment. The floods of Noah will not destroy this soul if it is in Christ. The floods of the Red Sea will not swamp your chariot with the Egypt, will not swamp you with the Egyptians on their chariots if you are in Christ. And the floodwaters of Jordan will not wash your soul away if in baptism you are united with Him. And baptism becomes a beautiful picture of safe passage through the waters of judgment. And so Exodus is echoed in this passage, even as it's echoed in our own experience Just a quick uh, reminder to you of the importance of baptism, perhaps as well. And if you have not been baptized, you can see me about that. We're planning perhaps a baptism service at the end of this summer. Thirdly, under Exodus echoed in significant events, I find it significant where they are going. And this third point is a place of blessing. We've mentioned already that in the Exodus record, there was passage through the waters, but it was to a point of destiny. That point of destiny was the promised land, a land that was described as flowing with milk and honey. And it's an echo in the exodus of the provision of God that would be ultimately fulfilled in glory for us, where we will freely partake 
of the tree of life, which is the healing of the nations. But the land of promise of old represented that consummate reality when grapes the size of uh, softballs or whatever I so imagine them to be were consumed by God's people and the land freely bloomed with every imaginable provision for their agricultural needs. So in this picture, in the Old Covenant, we see a passage through waters to a place of blessing. And it's interesting if you do a web search or a, do a quick search in your Bible dictionary of the name Gennesaret, you find the meaning of that town is a garden of riches or the paradise of Galilee. Gennesaret was a place that was situated in, in a spot that rendered its soil rich and overflowing, bountiful with blessing. It was referred to in its very name, recounting the provision of God in places like Eden and Canaan, a place of paradise, a refuge of bounty and provision, rich and lush and full of uh, food and sustenance for those that dwelt there. And so even in the name of Gennesaret, we perhaps see an allusion to a place of blessing that the disciples arrived at with Christ after safe passage across Galilee. And there's at least perhaps one other inference we can draw from this land. Not only do we see in the name this evidence of promise or a place of blessing that reminds us of an echo of the old covenant of Exodus, but we also see a fulfillment of a promise again from Matthew chapter 4. Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, the author is very mindful of the prophecies, particularly of Isaiah. And when he writes in his book, he records these moments of significant milestone where the old covenant prophets, what they foresaw being fulfilled in Christ, is obvious in the works of Christ. It says in verse 13, And leaving Nazareth, says Matthew 4, He, Christ, went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali the way by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death on them, and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. And so here Jesus is visiting this region, Gennesaret, situated in Naphtali, a region that was a prior victim to the reassign and relocation program of the Assyrians. It was a place where there was outcasts and ethnic groups that the more pure, ethnically pure Jews shunned and tend to stereotype and tend to ostracize. But in these lands, the outcasts, the places where in the past they had been under the great burden of God's judgment, there was redemption for them. And so even in Naphtali, the way by the sea, even Gennesaret, that town in that region, Jesus Christ's holy footsteps trod to bring the gospel, to bring the message of healing and hope in his body and in his blood. And their miracles were performed when those from the region gathered and merely touched the hem of his garment. Heading number two, Exodus echoed in significant acts. We've seen Exodus echoed in significant events. This provision in the wilderness, this passage through the, through the waters to a place of blessing but there are also ways in which Jesus interacted and displayed His mighty works, His acts, which are significant echoes of Exodus in the course of this passage and narrative. Notice, first of all, 
the interesting sequence of provision in chapter 14, 19, and 20, the way that Jesus multiplies the bread and feeds the 5,000. In 19 and 20, it says, Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. So you see a sequence of events here. It wasn't just like poof and everybody had bread and fish in their hand, but there was a way and a means that was employed here that seems to illustrate a significance in its sequence, in its order. First of all, what did Jesus do? He looked up to heaven. He acknowledged the Father with his gaze. He postured himself in unity with the Godhead before he did this miraculous act. Secondly, he said a blessing. He communicated with the Father. There was a prayer spoken from the lips of Christ. And then thirdly, he broke the loaves. And then he gave them to his disciples. And then the disciples gave them to the crowds and were satisfied. We think of the way that God uses us in his plans of provision for his people. We see a staggering parallel here. We can also think of the Exodus echoes in the way that God intervened and spoke to his people and the way he mediated and the way he provided help in between his holiness and the sinner to provide for their needs. We look to the old covenant and we see that there was perhaps mirrored in this sequence of events an idea of the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 and 11. That's that passage where you hear the message, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And then there's a command to the people to take the word of God to pass it on, as I briefly mentioned before, to their children. And so in a sequence like this, this is how it would begin. The prophet and or priest, let's say Moses, goes before the presence of God on behalf of the people. He looks, up, he looks upward to heaven as it were. Secondly, there's a prayer, there's an intercession on behalf of the people. And we see this record in Exodus, Moses pleading the case of the people to the Lord. For the sake of your great name, would you extend grace and mercy on your people? Would you provide for them? Grant them repentance. Grant them provision. And then God delivers by His Word. We see the delivering delivering of His Word in the tablets on Sinai. And then we see this Word through the prophet then passed on to the people. We see a commission to them to train their children. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, the message is, since your children were not there physically to see the Sinai event. Thus, God, my means of instructing and raising them in the significance of this moment is your duty to instruct them. And so we see in the gospel, since you and I were not physically there when Jesus broke the bread, he passed on to his disciples the duty to share the mighty works and to take the bread, as it were, of the kingdom and then to share it with others. And so we see echoes here 
in this sequence of events, not only of the Exodus account, of the way God intervened on behalf of His people, and the mediatory way He interceded and interacted on their behalf, but we also see a reference foreshadowing of the Great Commission, do we not? We see that there will come a time when Christ will be ascended into glory, but before He goes, He will commission the 500 and those who will be discipled by them to break the loaves, as it were, to take the message, as it were, and to disciple the nations, to take the word of life and to give to all that they come in contact with until all who are called by God's holy name eat and are satisfied by the bread of the kingdom. So this sequence of provision is significant here. Secondly, and we won't have time to get into this very deeply, it's certainly worthy of at least a message by itself, but there's an interesting concept of the outstretched arm of God, and in this case we see it in Christ, the incarnate Son, the outstretched arm that is the salvation of His disciple. Read with me again in the second miracle, the walking of the water following the third discourse, as we see how Christ intervenes on Peter's behalf in verse 30. But When he saw the wind, that is Peter, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He, Peter, cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The Exodus echoes are amazingly bold. They ring clear in this picture. If we imagine it in our mind's eye, there's the outstretched arm to the faithless Peter. There is this picture of regeneration, even if you will, the order of salvation preceding the faith of the subject grabbing Peter and pulling him into the boat to safety. There is the intervention by the sovereign hand of God through Christ to rescue Peter in this picture from the destruction of the waves. There is the outstretched arm of the Lord, perhaps echoed in this picture, which recalls the anthropomorphic, if you will, language of outstretched arm in Old Covenant. Anthropomorphic means speaking in human terms so that we can understand a divine truth. Speaking in human terms of a divine truth. God reached out His arm. He doesn't have a physical arm, but that's a way for us in our uh, finitude to understand it. It's as if God reached out to His people with His outstretched arm and worked His mighty works in judgment on the Egyptians and in salvation for His people. And do a word study if you have time, sometime specifically, most directly, but you can find it all through the Old Covenant in the book of Deuteronomy, the covenant history cataloged of God's interaction with His people that is spoken of in the context of His outstretched arm. You will find in Deuteronomy 4, 34-36, that there's the discipline... That is the instruction of the people through the signs and wonders of God's outstretched arm that is in view in that passage in its context. There's the outstretched arm of God on behalf of His people referenced in Deuteronomy 5.15. And here it's a call to remembrance and relationship to the Sabbath. When you pause for rest under the new covenant terms, remember the delivering outstretched hand of the Lord. Every time you pause from your work and consider the grace of God. 
on your existence. In Deuteronomy 7, 19, there's the outstretched arm that is referenced to draw the peoples of God, their attention to the confidence in providence by a testimony of God's divine and specific interaction with His people. In Deuteronomy 9, 25-29, Moses makes an intercessory appeal on behalf of the people, pleading with God, you stretched out your arm. On the ground of your outstretched arm, complete the work that you have begun in these wayward few for your glory and your namesake. It continues Deuteronomy 11.5, the historical prologue, and that, that includes there a charge to instruct the generations in the work of God with His people as referenced by the outstretched arm in relationship to the outstretched arm of God. And again, Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 11, in reference to worship and offering. 1 Kings 8, 41 through 43, even the temple worship recalls this language when Solomon constructs the house of the Lord. Again, 2 Chronicles 6, 22, and on and on through Scripture it goes. The covenant history of God in relationship to His people is pictured as an outstretched arm intervening on their behalf. It's a beautiful picture of salvation. And there is something of that picture here when Christ reaches out His hand and takes hold of the faithless Peter and says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And you see in Peter's heart something like the children of old, do you not? I provided you safe passage across the waters of the Red Sea, and now that you doubt that I can provide you food in this desolate place. I've provided you manna day after day, and now you complain because you want a little more diversity in your diet. I spoke, and water burst forth. I commanded my servant Moses. He struck the rock, and water freely flowed for you. So those that hungered and thirst for physical water might be filled, and now you doubt my hand. O faithless generation, how long will I suffer with you? And thus we see the striking evidence of God's steadfast love. And indeed, as we mentioned before, compassion on His people. And it is pictured beautifully in His outstretched arm to His faithless ones, pulling us from deserved judgment when we had denied Him, when we had a faithless heart that did not trust that He was Lord of the waves, Lord over the provision we need for food, Lord over the healing of our physical body, and more than that, and pictured in all of that, Lord over eternal life. Yet God has seen fit to stretch out His arm and to ransom a few of us here. And praise the Lord for it. His arm is not too short to save. He has saved us. Thank you, Lord, for your salvation. And thirdly and finally, Exodus echoed in significant acts in these miracles. We pause and consider this moment in Gennesaret, verses 34 through 36. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. And here we have a picture of healing garments, if you will. What is significant in echoes from Exodus and even foreshadowing of the future of the garments of Christ connected to the healing of these peoples? 
Well, I submit to you it is significant in as far as, for instance, the priestly garments of old had significance and meaning. In Exodus 28, 6 through 12, there was design and redemptive language in sewn and interwoven in the uh, garments of the priest, the high priest that would go in and intercede on, the behalf of, on behalf of the people. There were the names of the 12 tribes of Israel written on his garments. And that was to communicate that when the high priest in his office intercedes, he goes representing you on your behalf, beseeching the holiness of God, making sacrifice for a people as a representative, as a substitute figure, praying for them that God might be gracious and save. And Jesus Christ is our high priest. And on his garments, as it were, were written his own. And when he stepped into his intercessory role that Hebrews so beautifully details, he did so, if you were a child of his, with your name and mine written on his garments, as it were. And when he intercedes on behalf of the Father, how many prayers of Christ, we think of John 17, how many prayers of Christ do you think will be answered? Each and every one. So that every name that is attached to the hem of his garment, as it were, will be healed from the suffocating, dehabilitating, sinful, and hellish effects of his sin. Praise the Lord. Just one touch, one connection with the garments of the high priest and our sin and our physical, as in this picture, the physical sickness is washed away. The most beautiful picture, and with this passage will close, of garments us and Christ and their relationship that I know to leave you with is in Revelation chapter 7. Turn with me to that great book that ties up so many. I hesitate to call them loose ends of Scripture. But indeed, so much makes sense when viewed in the light of the significant fulfillment in the language of the book of Revelation. And one of the significant fulfillments in this book has to do with garments, Christ and us, and indeed his blood. It says in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through the end of the chapter, After this I looked, and behold, a great number, great multitude, that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Listen to their cry. Verse 10, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know, he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs 
of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And here we have the complete, hopeful, promised picture of the relationship between us, garments, what we wear representing the blood of Jesus Christ washing us white as snow and Jesus Christ, our Paschal Lamb, the one who intervened, whose strong arm rescued us like Peter on our behalf. And here the Exodus echo in the book of Revelation becomes an eternal reality of perfect holiness for all who are washed in Christ's blood. Such that you and I, if you're under his blood today, will join him one day in fulfillment of the call to worship from Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory do his name. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The voice of the Lord thunders. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beautiful message of the Holy Gospel that you have delivered to us in so many manifold ways in your scriptures. I pray, Lord, more importantly than this message hanging as decibels in our ear, I pray that whatever is true to your word of it would be written on the tables of our heart. I pray that you would reinforce our faith in you as we listen and apply. I pray that you would equip and commission us, Lord Jesus, to go beyond and to break and to share. Lord, to go beyond the walls of this place, breaking and sharing the bread of life, Jesus Christ, with those that we come in contact with. I pray, Lord, upon your soon return, at your perfect time and choosing, when history has finally offered up to you the final and last reward of the Lamb who has suffered, and all of the elect are gathered into the storehouses of glory, I pray that, you would find, that we would find each other, Lord Jesus, worshiping as Revelation 7 declares before your throne with the angels crying, holy is the lamb that was slain. But if there are any who fellowship with us today who are not, Lord Jesus, washed by the imputed blood of Jesus Christ, I pray that they might find place to repent today. For the message to them is repent for today is a day of salvation. And move them, Father, to testify of their faith in your strong arm by seeking out someone who has found assurance of the gospel in you, that they might join them in fellowship and discipleship, Lord, glorifying you and spreading the message of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.